0: Our assignment for today is forgives iniquity. And the first thing I'm asked to do is begin by discussing what iniquity means. Is it synonymous with transgression and or sin? That's an excellent question. Maybe you can help me with that. We'll get a mic to you if you want to help. Because I can't say that I find a lot of difference between them. We have passages like Leviticus 5.17, which says, If a soul sin, he shall bear his iniquity. So maybe it's the sin that gets you into the iniquity, but they seem to be very closely and intricately related. Nehemiah four verse five says, Cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out. So this is a Hebrew parallelism where we have two equivalent expressions used one after another. The whole Hebrew Bible is filled with that type of thing. It seems that these are synonyms, at least at times, and they're always closely interrelated. Although sin might be said to create the iniquity. We have other passages, too, that I don't think I'll take the time to turn to, like Job chapter 10, verse 14, Psalm 32, verse 5, Psalm 85, verse 2. These are parallelisms equating sin and iniquity. So the bottom line for me on this is I cannot think of a place in the Bible where you would corrupt the understanding of the text by taking the word sin and iniquity synonymously. Maybe you can. Can anybody think of a place in the Bible where the text would be violated if you took sin and iniquity as being equivalent to one another? Well, I'm not seeing any hands on that, and I'm really not surprised. I, I think we can take them as being rather synonymous with each other. I heard this illustration used one time, and I have thought of it for years, and I've never found too much wrong with it, so I'll pass it on to you and see if you can shoot it out of a saddle. But the illustration was given to me. Suppose you are in a field shooting arrows at a target. If you hit the bullseye, you achieved your goal. That's what you were aiming for. But the word sin in the New Testament, harmartia is the original Greek word. The word sin means to miss the mark. So you shoot at the target, but you shoot over the target, and that would be a transgression. You shoot at the target, but it hits under the target. That would be a shortcoming. You shoot at the bullseye, but it swerves from the target, That would be an error. Like the Apostle Paul said, there are some who have swerved aside unto vain jangling. The wind hits that arrow and knocks it out of place. So there would be error, there would be transgression, there would be shortcomings, but iniquity would be the field where you go and pick up all those arrows. And I think that would be equivalent to sin. These are all sins, they are varieties of sin, but we can get more specific about describing them. If you think that is not an adequate illustration or there's something wrong with it, I'd be interested in knowing that. I've never been able to find anything wrong with it myself, and uh, I've always kind of kept it in mind since I heard it maybe 50 years ago, because to me it helps to describe the varieties of sin. But for our purposes, I'm just going to be thinking in terms of iniquity and sin being roughly the same thing. Now, I have another part of this assignment that says, how can we imitate the Father when showing mercy and love to others and overcoming grudges? I think that's important enough to skip down to that part of it and talk about it a little bit, especially not knowing when the rain might stop us. So I'll just begin here by saying that sin is a problem for everybody. It's a problem for man and it's a problem for God. God took the risk of creating us with freedom. We chose loving ourselves more than loving him, which is the philosophical basis of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. First John three, four by self will, man becomes the sinner of his own world. And the more we sin, the more we become habituated to it. The more we are habituated to it, the more we are degraded by it. And we become like animals more than like people created in the image of God. We become driven more by instinct than by intellect our moral nature overtaken by our bestial nature. Consistent sinning sparks a chain reaction, a spiritual chain reaction. Cobwebs turn into cables, and we become so overwhelmed by the power we have given sin in our lives that we sin almost without conscience. You and I will treat forgiveness lightly as long as we treat sin lightly. Grace will seem cheap and easy as long as sin seems trite and meaningless. Romans 3.20 says that by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We're only going to be able to appreciate to what we have been saved when we realize from what we have been saved, and those are the very pits of hell, the most horrible destiny imaginable. Grace, as we learned earlier in the week in Tad's class, is that disposition in the heart of God to favor those who deserve only condemnation. It's the unmerited favor of God. We know we're guilty, and when we know we're guilty, we don't need an accuser. We need an advocate, somebody to stand between us and God where we cannot because we're blighted by sin. So the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Jesus was grace on two feet, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. Those three stories in the 15th chapter of the book of Luke, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, demonstrate this beautifully. He gives us our freedom despite the risk of losing us. We are free to lose ourselves. He acknowledges our intrinsic value, even though our extrinsic value may be nil. The Lord is a real futures investor, and investing in futures is risky. So he goes after us, he seeks us until he finds us or until we're dead, one or the other. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He never has enough of us until he has all of us. I think you know that feeling, too. You may have eight children, but if seven of them are at home and you're wondering where the other one was. Yesterday, after the break down the hill, we had 68 students in the class, but there were two chairs empty after the break. My concern was over those two empty chairs. Eventually, they they showed up. It wasn't that long, just a minute or two. But. There was a concern in my mind about those two empty chairs. Did we lose somebody? That's the way God is with us. He never has enough of us until he has all of us. Ninety-nine sheep weren't enough. Nine coins weren't enough. One son wasn't enough. And we get the impression that even if there had only been one lost sinner in the world, God still would have given his son. So there is a limitation on God's grace that's implied in those stories. A dead sheep, a destroyed coin, a dead son would have ended the stories. Death ends God's graciousness toward us since we can no longer respond to it. When even Cain, who slaughtered his brother, sought mercy from God, God placed a mark on him to protect him. God has never wanted to punish. The 18th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, which is referenced in my assignment, Has God asking the question, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. In the times of Hosea, sin ran rampant. Life was barren. Worship of God was disgustingly polluted. Satan reigned supreme. Hosea chapter four, verse one says, I have a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth. There's no mercy. There's no knowledge of God in the land. The people of Hosea's day had long forgotten what their forefather Solomon had written. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart in Proverbs chapter three, verse three. But God's grace was extended even to those in Hosea's day. Hosea 11 verses 8 and 9 is a passage dripping with pathos. How shall I give thee up, O Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. Here we have the picture of God forgiving iniquities. We see a glimpse of of the urgency and the beauty of the grace of God in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with thy God? God is sovereign in his grace. If grace is unmerited, then nobody can claim it as an inalienable right. If grace is unearned, then nobody is entitled to it. If grace is an undeserved gift, then nobody can come to God and demand it. Grace is the antithesis of justice. And because our salvation is through grace, Ephesians 2 and numerous other passages, then the chiefest of sinners is not beyond its reach. Because salvation is by grace, all of our boasting is excluded and God gets all the glory. In justice, we get what we deserve. In mercy, we do not get what we deserve. And in grace, we get what we do not deserve. Grace is, therefore, to us the miracle of miracles, the unthinkable, has happened. We can't understand how true that is here and now. God, our enemy, our justifiable accuser, has become our friend, our advocate, our affirmer, our vindicator. Romans 5.8, God commendeth his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace is the unilateral unilateral character of God's righteousness. And because it's a free gift, it remains within God's power to give it as he sees fit. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God is sovereign in his grace. It is his right so to be. It's his gift. He provided no plan of salvation for the fallen angels. I can't tell you why. If he had provided a plan of salvation for the fallen angels, it would be all right with me. Maybe it was not possible, given all the variations of the case. I simply do not know. We do know that he spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. He didn't save the old world except for eight people, but condemned that world to a universal flood. He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Did he want to? No. He listened with absorbed interest to the prayer of Abraham. But there weren't even ten righteous people to avail themselves of the grace of God. God's grace does not negate the consequences of sin here and now. David, in the case of Bathsheba, could say, like Achan, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. But he'd have to add a fifth thing as well. I paid. David kept paying for that sin for the rest of his life. David's baby died and the sword never left his house. Evil arose from within. David repented and his sin repelled him and demanded a cleansing which could only come from God. His agonized prayer is recorded in the 51st Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. David needed a new heart. Sin had destroyed the old one. He could do nothing but throw himself on the mercy and grace of God and ask him to forgive. And God did forgive. He cleansed, he recreated, he restored. But the consequences of David's sin remained. David's life and his influence were never the same again because the deed was done. And through the death of his baby, David may have learned a lesson that each of us need to learn. The sin in our lives is often felt the most by the lives of others. It's often felt the most in the lives of others. It's to David's credit that once his sin was brought to light, he didn't try to cover it anymore. His son Solomon would later write in Proverbs 28, verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So David was given mercy at the hands of the merciful, gracious God, But the consequences of his sin would remain with him as long as he lived. I was asked the question about what does it mean to visit iniquity on children and grandchildren. I think that's exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about the consequences of sin, not the guilt of sin. The guilt of sin does not transfer from one person to another. But the consequences of sin can ring all the way down through a number of generations. And we find that, as I think you know, in the 18th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. The grace of God did not come cheap. The grace that God uses for us cost heaven its finest jewel. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. So now I sing a brand new song. Christ paid the debt I could never pay. He had said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And he said this signifying by what debt he should die. That was his commitment to us. So the paradox is that the grace of God is free, but yet it's the most costly thing in eternity. What was it Paul said? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So I don't frustrate the grace of God, Galatians two twenty and 21. Isaiah put it this way in the 53rd chapter. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem his as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon him, of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Grace does not eliminate human responsibility. Grace emphasizes human responsibility. Grace, because it is not cheap, delivers agonizing duties and obligations. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, said Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. Grace does not make us irresponsible. Grace makes us extremely responsible. This reminds me of the sixth chapter of the Roman letter, and almost everything about this lesson reminds me of that chapter, which we may go to later if we have time. This question about forgiving others and even forgiving ourselves is one of great importance. In view of his grace... Does God want us to be mired in guilt and regrets, or does he provide a way out of them? Obviously, he provides a way out. So what do you need to know about, first of all, forgiving yourself? Sometimes our past deeds can weigh very heavily upon us, and there's obviously no way to travel back in time and undo the things that we've done. I wish that I could. Undoubtedly, I think we all have. The Apostle Paul looked at his past with tremendous Regret. I'm less than the least of the apostles. I'm no I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, he said, because I persecuted the church of God, 1 Corinthians 15 9. Paul wrote those words decades after his persecution of the church. They indicate that he had by no means forgotten his shameful and destructive actions as a young man. The Bible shows us that Paul left that life behind and went on to live a much more constructive and productive life. He had a lot to say about forgiveness and about not remaining stuck in feelings of guilt. So what can we do when guilt and regret about our past actions keep us from moving ahead in our lives as we should? How can we learn to leave those things behind and move forward? The Bible, as far as I'm aware, never speaks in terms of forgiving ourselves, but it does give a blueprint to follow in freeing ourselves of past guilt and gaining a healthier view. We can start by realizing that forgiving, whether it involves forgiving other people or forgiving ourselves, is not about condoning wrong actions. It's not about a lack of accountability. It's not about ignoring the consequences of our behavior, many of which can remain devastating throughout life. Forgiveness is not about expecting other people to ignore the consequences of our behavior. Forgiveness involves understanding that God indeed forgives iniquity. He forgives sinners who turn from their sins and turn to Him. And understanding that God not only allows them to move forward, but wants them to move forward. This is His design for us. On the list of things to talk about that I was given it says cover examples of God's forgiveness in Scripture, such as Manasseh. And Manasseh is a good one to talk about. I think Jay talked about that Wednesday night, didn't you, Jay? But he didn't talk about it very much, so I'll talk about Manasseh a little more. The life of Manasseh, who was one of the kings of Judah, is quite instructive about how God views a repentant sinner. Manasseh was the son of the righteous king Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the best kings Judah ever had. Manasseh, on the other hand, was among the worst, and his reign over Judah was the longest of any of the kings, 55 years. The Bible lists some of the evil deeds of King Manasseh in Second Chronicles 33. In verse 2, it tells us generally that he did evil things in God's sight. In verse 3, we're told that he rebuilt the sites of pagan worship that had been torn down by his righteous father, Hezekiah. He also additionally sacrificed his own children in idol worship. If you can believe that, it's hard to even stomach the idea, but he did it. He also consulted mediums, verse 6, verse 7 says that he even set up an idol in the temple of God. And verse 9 finishes by saying that Manasseh seduced the people of Judah to do more evil than even the surrounding pagan nations had done. What a horrible indictment of this man. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Manasseh was responsible for a great deal of bloodshed among those who tried to follow God. Josephus says, quote, for setting out from a contempt of God, he barbarously slew all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, nor would he spare the prophets, for he every day slew some of them till Jerusalem was overflowed with blood, end quote. We are even told that Manasseh is the one who put the prophet Isaiah in a hollow log and sent him through a sawmill, cutting him in half. Remember the 11th chapter of the Hebrew letter? It talks about those who were sawn asunder, but no names are attached to that. According to tradition, Isaiah was one of the ones who suffered that fate, and he suffered it, apparently, at the hands of this man, Manasseh. It's hard to imagine having a more guilt-ridden past than Manasseh. But in time, God caused the nation to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians and Manasseh to be carried away in chains. Second Chronicles, verse 11 of chapter 33. Finally, Manasseh took stock of his actions and repented of his sins. We don't want to go too lightly on the concept of repentance. Sometimes we hit that in Scripture and it's almost like we slipped on a banana peel. We're so anxious to get the baptism. But repentance is very important. Repentance is three whole, threefold. It is intellectual, it is emotional, and it has a volitional component as well. If we have time later, we might discuss that further. So when it says you repented, this is not necessarily a momentary thing. This may have taken some time for him to come to terms with. But he repented of his sins. That's in verse 12 of the chapter we're considering in 2 Chronicles 33. What was God's response after the enormity of Manasseh's sins and wickedness? When he saw Manasseh's change of heart, when he heard his cries, he received his entreaty, and he restored Manasseh to the throne in Jerusalem. That's verse 13. Manasseh demonstrated his genuine change of heart by destroying the places of idol worship and rebuilding the altar of God, verses 15 and 16. Even the sins of King Manasseh were not too great to be forgiven by God. Forgiveness comes from God first. We need to seek the forgiveness of God as shown by Manasseh's example. The common denominator among people who have been forgiven by God, no matter how deplorable their deeds have been, is repentance, turning from their sins and turning to God. The Bible describes Manasseh's repentance like this. Now when he was in affliction, he implored Jehovah his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. 2 Chronicles 33 verse 12. Those words, I'm not sure, sum up everything that was really going on there. I view this as taking some time, as taking some tears, as a real change of heart and mind. Repentance is like that. It involves sorrow for past deeds and turning from them to live a different way. Paul said God now commands all men everywhere to repent on Mars Hill, Acts 17, 30. He went on to say that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. The key to forgiving ourselves is this. Understand that it is God's opinion of us that's ultimately going to be what matters. And God is willing to forgive if we repent. Understanding that should help me to move on regardless of what I've done in the past. When we have really repented of our sins, God not only forgives them, but he removes those sins from us. And knowing this is, to me, the starting point for forgiving yourself. Psalm 103, 11 and 12 puts it this way. It explains this wonderful truth about God's forgiveness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Think of that. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. God's mercy toward us gives all of us the chance to move forward with a clean slate. His grace gives us a new place to start. Guilt can be a healthy feeling to alert us to the fact that we have sinned and that we need to make changes. But if we hang on to feelings of guilt, after repentance and after making the needed changes, it can become unhealthy. Hanging on to feelings of guilt and a preoccupation with self-reproach can prevent you from forgiving yourself and from going out and living a productive life in service to the Lord and other people. So it's important to establish whose opinion really matters about this and to know how God views us after we, we repent and come clean with him and change our lives. There is a day of judgment coming. God has made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled to him by the death of Jesus Christ through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism into Christ for the remission of sins. So when we've truly repented and been baptized, we are forgiven completely and reconciled to God. And there's no other way to think about it. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. When God has forgiven us and reconciled us to himself by the death of his son, there is no reason any longer for us to hang on to guilty feelings about our past. In the words of Paul, what shall we say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? Romans eight thirty one. When we've repented of our sins, been baptized, and made the necessary changes in our lives, it's time to leave the past behind and move forward. After baptism, we're always going to need to be aware of the times that we fall short. We will always need to repent of sin when it again enters our lives. Our focus, though, should be forward-looking, and we should bear in mind that when God forgives sins, He forgives completely, and he wants to see us move on. There's a very encouraging passage from the book of Jeremiah quoted in the Hebrew letter that I think you're very familiar with. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17. So the Bible clearly shows us that the path to follow is to repent before God, change direction, be assured that when God forgives, he removes our transgressions from us. Consider one more passage on this subject from the Apostle Paul, the man who had persecuted the church and still felt bad about it. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are ahead I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. That didn't mean that Paul forgot his past in the sense that he never could remember it again. He wrote about it by inspiration in the Bible. But it meant that this was not the thing that he dwelled on from day to day. He was too busy moving forward and being of service to God and to people. Now, what about forgiving others? If you can forgive yourself, Can you forgive others if you realize that God can forgive you? Does this help you to forgive others? Well, it certainly should. I have to admit that sometimes when somebody tells me that they'll just never forgive somebody because of what they did, sometimes I can't say that I even really blame them. When I hear the story, it's so egregious, it's so hurtful that I just want to go find the person that wronged them and shake them and say, how, you, how could you do that to this person? Often they have an excellent case and they've clearly been victimized and it's gone on and on and on. And now maybe they're being asked to pretend that everything's okay. And they don't want to pretend that everything's okay because in their mind it's not okay. And I find that I'm on their side. In the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew, Peter heard Jesus teach about dealing with trespasses in the church He came to Jesus and he asked, so, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive? What about seven times? That seemed like a good round biblical number. And I think that Peter thought that he was probably even exaggerating a little bit to offer to forgive seven times. There's a lot of confusion about the nature of forgiveness, which I have been asked to talk about. The assumption often is that forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. So if I want to do something nice for somebody who's hurt me, I'll forgive them. And I think that's what Peter's saying here. I'll be a nice guy. I will stretch. I will bend. I'll forgive him seven times. But at what point do I get to draw the line and say, that's enough? When you've been hurt, you feel that there is a debt. That's why we say, you owe me. You owe me an apology. Or you owe me $100 if I... Lent you $100 and you owe me $100. Jesus uses money to help us think precisely and concisely about this issue. We feel that there is a debt. The innocent victim feels that they are owed something. And so we hold on to that, building our case. And if somebody asks us why we're upset, we can spell it out and convince them that we have a right to hold this against somebody. We feel justified because we're victims. But then somewhere along the line, somebody comes to you and says, well, you shouldn't feel that way. You're a Christian. So we take these emotions and we stuff them down and maybe we get depressed because anger that's been stuffed down and turned inward can lead to depression. But it hasn't gone away. It's still there lurking beneath the surface. People often share their story. We find that we identify with their story and we're on their side. And it's it seems like maybe God is being a little unfair in telling us that we must forgive. Because there's a tendency to hold on to the problem because I feel like I'm justified. I feel like I'm right. And when somebody then does have the audacity to say, well, you ought to forgive, it just doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. I'm the victim. Why should I do them the favor of forgiving them? After all, I don't owe them. They owe me. They took from me. So we hold on to that, asking, like Peter, when is enough enough? And that's when the Lord told this strange story that I want to recite in our hearing, even though I think you know it well, but it's just such an interesting story that the Lord told in this context. And to me, it reduces the problem of forgiveness to terms that I can understand. Beginning in verse 23 of Matthew 18, therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, One was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, notice that expression and emphasize that in your mind. Payment to be made. The servant, therefore, fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, we have patience, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Notice that expression in verse 27. Forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. That's just a little bit of money. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their lord all that was done. Then his lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, "O oh, thou wicked servant! I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee?" Emphasize that statement in your mind. I had pity on thee and his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Why is God being so adamant about this? Why is he making it our problem when somebody has wronged us? Why does the Lord have the audacity to say that I must forgive Peter you have to forgive every single time and if you don't I'm coming after you doesn't seem right does it I'm the one who's been hurt after all I've already got somebody after me and now you're telling me that if I don't forgive you're coming after me too well we're never going to be able to erase that story from the Bible we're never going to be able to get rid of verse 35 where Jesus just flatly says you have to forgive every time So we'd better find a way to come to terms with it. I think by this point in the conversation Peter was probably very sorry that he even brought it up and asked the question at all. And I know this is a sensitive subject and I want to be as sensitive about it as I can. I know that there are people here within the sound of my voice right now who have been extremely hurt over a long period of time and you could tell your story and we'd all be unhappy with the person who has damaged you and we'd feel like you're just justified in holding on to that hurt. But Here's what Jesus said, not me. I wouldn't have the nerve to say this to you on my own. Jesus says to us, brother, sister, you've got to forgive or I'm coming after you. And we just wonder how God can really say that. God, I thought you were good. How can you be my enemy when I've already got an enemy? But the reason God has the nerve to threaten us into forgiveness is that our loving Heavenly Father knows that to refuse to push these The forgiveness button is the same as pushing the self-destruct button in our lives. To refuse to push that button that allows us to forgive is going to kill us over time. It's just a matter of time. Refusing to cancel that debt is to chain yourself to the hurt and drag it along with you for the rest of your life. And as insensitive as it may seem, as unrealistic as it may seem, the Father knows enough to threaten us, you either forgive or else. Because I love you and I know what happens if you don't forgive. I know how you're built because I built you. God is the one who feels your pain. I don't, and it would be disingenuous of me to claim that I feel your pain. But God is the one who watched the whole thing happen, and he still says that you must forgive or it'll be a disaster for you. Sometimes spouses sort of get in each other's way of our anger towards somebody else. And when you hear stories, you can understand why they're mad. They have every reason to be. But the problem is they hang on to it and it destroys their lives, both individually and together. You're never going to be allow, able to allow the past to be the past until you deal with this issue of forgiveness. Just as God forgives iniquity when that forgiveness is not deserved, So we are implored to do the same thing. Jesus had the audacity to say this to that group that day because he knew before long something was going to happen that would change the course of history forever. At Calvary, all of us lost our right to refuse to forgive. When Jesus decided to die for us, the Father already knew all about you. He knew the times that you would make promises to him that you'd never follow through on. He knew the times that you'd fall asleep when you were talking to him. He knew the periods of your life that you would completely ignore his word. He knew the times when you would purposely do what's wrong, just figuring you'd work it out later on down the line. He knew the times when he would bail you out, and as soon as he did, you would go on your merry way ignoring him. He knew the times that you would use money that he gave you to pay for entertainment, to watch sin that his son had to die for. He knew all of that, and he decided to forgive you anyway. I can forgive you by canceling your debt. But he, to forgive you, had to send his son to die to pay for your sins. And he did that knowing what you'd be like. So it's in the shadow of the cross that you and I are commanded to forgive one another. God hasn't asked you to be crucified for that person. He's just asked you to cancel their debt. That seems rather small in view of the crucifixion. Just to give some mercy. Not what people deserve, but what people don't deserve. And here is the place where I cannot have it both ways. I want God to show me mercy because I know I need it. But I want him to show those who have hurt me justice. I want them to get what they deserve, but I don't want to get what I deserve. Forgiveness is not primarily for the person who's hurt you, though it may do some good relationally. But forgiveness is for you. You're doing yourself the biggest favor in the world if you forgive. Forgiveness allows you to cut the chain with the past. It allows you to move on beyond the anger that impacts all our relationships while we carry it with us. God says you must forgive for your own sake. You must forgive because I forgave you. And in forgiving, you will be set free. And any problems that you have from your past background, maybe in the family where you were raised or situations you've been in, those things that keep haunting you, maybe in your newer situations now, those things will begin to subside and start to fade away. So if we can just think of forgiveness like the Lord illustrated it here, in terms of canceling a debt, I think it becomes a lot simpler. That's the picture that the Lord gave us of forgiveness. I need to identify what I believe has been taken from me or withheld from me. Sometimes we try to forgive generally and it doesn't work very well. We need to forgive specifically. What is it? I need to identify specifically what I, is, what, what I believe it is that you owe me. What has been withheld from me or taken from me or what the problem is specifically. And then once I have identified what you owe me, then I simply cancel that debt. It sounds easy. Sometimes it actually can be easy. If we, if we use the Lord's illustration here, think in terms of money. I owe you $100. I don't pay you back the $100. And you have it within your power to simply cancel that debt. You don't even have to tell me you canceled the debt. You can just cancel it in your own mind. Rick doesn't owe me anymore. I'm never going to loan him money again, but he doesn't owe me anymore. And by canceling that debt, you're freeing yourself because now you don't have to worry about it anymore. You can move on. You have learned from the experience. That's the illustration the Lord gives. Simply cancel the debt because forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision. I choose to cancel the debt. I choose to declare. You don't owe me anymore. And I don't even have to tell you that. I can just decide it. You may have something against somebody who's dead. You can't tell them anything, but you can cancel their debt in your own mind and refuse to hold that debt against them again. Now, I don't believe personally that forgiveness erases our memory. I've met a lot of people who do. I've met people who say, "Well, if you haven't forgotten it, you haven't forgiven it." I I don't I, I don't go along with that because I, I I don't know how possible it is to forget. Sometimes I, I don't believe that God even forgets your sins in the sense of not knowing that you did them. God is aware of everything. That verse in Hebrews 8, 12 that says, I will, I will remember them no more. Their, their sins and iniquities, I will remember no more, is said in the sense of remembering them against you. God's not going to hold these things against you. But that doesn't mean he has no memory of them at all. And I think I can prove that to you. Peter denied Christ, and that was a sin. It was a sin that was later forgiven, but still later than that, it was written in the Bible by the inspiration of God. If God had absolutely forgotten about it, then how did he remember it to put it in the Bible? So we have to be careful with the concept of forgetfulness. It doesn't mean that we never have that come and recur back to our memory. It means that we're not remembering it against somebody. We're not holding it against somebody. I don't believe that Forgiveness erases God's memory absolutely any more than it erases your memory absolutely. You've still got the memory, and if you think about that, it can still trigger the hurt. But what you have to decide is, I'm not picking that up. They don't owe me. I forgave that debt, and then you can remember without rancor. You remember maybe with a little bit of grief or sadness, but it's not sparking anger within you anymore. As you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, as you make it a habit to refuse to pick up that hurt, refusing to reinstate that debt. Those memories, if it was a big thing, they may always be somewhat painful, but over time, they will cease to raise the resentment. They will cease to raise the frustration and the anger that used to compound them. You'll still feel a little of the pain, perhaps, but you won't be angry. And you may even find the beginning of the possibility of a door opening up for a potential of some sort of relationship with that person. Over time, if you continue to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, those painful memories can actually become memorials in your mind, memorials to God's goodness, grace, and his healing power. And you'll be different. You'll be changed. And what was once a very negative thing can become a source of praise and even joy as you experience the healing power of God. Allow your painful memories to become reminders of God's forgiveness to you. We all have these painful things to a greater or lesser extent. You can either waste them or you can use them well. You can take those painful things and use them as stumbling stones and complain about it the rest of your life, or you can use them as stepping stones to greater things as you move on into the future, the exciting future that God has for you. I think perhaps more than any other one thing, this idea of forgiving other people's sins against you is the key to breaking negative thoughts about the past. And what about now? You know, in the Ephesian letter, we talked about this a couple of days ago, so I won't go back over it to any extent now, but this is part of the package. Be angry and sin not. There is a legitimate anger if If I go home and somebody has robbed my house, that's going to be a big inconvenience and I'll probably be somewhat angry about that. It's okay to feel it, but what do you do with that anger? We talked about that the other day, stating, bottom line is summary, that we are never to allow our anger to control what we do, what we say, or what we decide. And that's the tricky part. You can be justified in your anger and think that you are justified in your decision. But you've got to split the two apart. Be angry and sin not. A lot of times uh, people let the sun set so many times on their wrath that they're not even sure what they're mad about anymore. And that's a, a very sad thing to see. Don't give the devil that kind of a foothold in your life. That's the message of Ephesians 4. Jesus was sent to die for my sins before I even sinned them. So decide when you are wronged that you are going to forgive even before you've been wronged. Have that attitude as a fixture over your mind that if somebody wrongs me today, I'm going to forgive that right away. Somebody does something against me, hey, you don't owe me. You don't owe me. It's like in the traffic we were talking about on Wednesday. They cut you off. Be my guest. You're in a bigger hurry than I am. Be my guest. Go right ahead. That attitude can save you from a thousand perils. Decide that you're going to forgive even before somebody sins against you. And especially focus on those people who are special problems to you. And you've all got them. It's just, you don't owe me. I refuse to build a case because life is too short. This kind of forgiveness is immediate. It's complete. It's just like God. You've got till sundown to get rid of it. Don't take it into the next day because you just can't afford it. Your family can't afford for you to be carrying these things around. Carry it around very long, it will manifest itself in sin. Okay to be angry, not okay to sin, and the way to solve that is to keep very short accounts. Now a lot of people ask this question on this issue of forgiving the iniquities of other people against you. Once I have forgiven the other person, Am I supposed to just go on like nothing ever happened? To me, the answer to that is no. Forgiveness is a decision that is the first step toward healing. But if you've been deeply hurt, that healing takes time. And forgiving somebody does not mean that the very next day you have a totally different relationship with that person. Your attitude toward the person can change without your relationship immediately changing. You still may not like that person but you don't have a right to make him pay. Why? Because you forgave the debt. There is no debt. You forgave it already. So you don't have a right to make him pay. When you're hurt emotionally, it can be compared to being hurt physically. Say that I have a deep and life-threatening gash in my leg, and I'm laying here bleeding on the ground. What am I going to be like? Well, I'm probably not going to want anybody to touch it, so I'm going to be defensive. I'm going to be very sensitive about my leg, I'm going to suddenly be very self-centered because the more you hurt, the more self-centered you become. If I get run over across in the road over here after a while, that's not the time to come up to me and start telling me about your problems. As I'm laying there in pain, I'm interested in one thing, and that's me. Because when you're hurt, you're self-centered. That's the nature of pain. That's part of being wounded. Now, if I'm laying here with this gash and the blood running out of me, nothing can instantaneously heal my physical wound But there are some things a doctor could do to help begin the healing process. Sometimes the things the doctor does hurt worse than the wound itself hurt. I remember when I was a kid, I took a a sky scooter, as we called it. It was on a swing set. And this was back when they made them out of real heavy gauge metal built to last back in the 50s. And uh, I took one right here in the lips, put my lip wide open. And uh, as I was running home, I can remember the blotches of blood. On the ground as I ran, I ran into the house and my parents. I must have been on a Saturday because they were both there. My parents took me up to the doctor to get some stitches in my lip, and that's those stitching. That, that stitching hurt more than anything else in the whole experience. I can remember that doctor hovering above me, coming at me with that needle. So sometimes you can hurt a little more even after the forgiveness has happened. Sometimes, literally, forgiveness seems at first to intensify the pain. This is one reason people draw back from the whole idea of dealing with this. I'd rather just ignore it. But just as surgery can be the beginning of the healing, so is forgiveness. To refuse to forgive is to continue to hurt. It's not true that time heals all wounds. I've heard people say, well, I forgave and I don't feel any better. That may be because forgiveness is just the beginning. Forgiving does not mean acting as if nothing ever happened. There are a few cases in life where God wants us to pretend about anything. He wants us to be real. He wants us to be honest. But he wants us to be Christian. I think there's a lot of misconception about this. If you have been wounded, you may need to establish some relational boundaries. A boundary is something that determines who gets in and how close they get. You have boundaries at home. That's why you have a door on your house. You have a door to control who gets in. If a salesman comes to the door, you may not let him in. Maybe you go out on the step and talk to him there. Some people you just don't want in. So you control with your door who gets into your house. In the same way, to allow this healing process to continue and to complete, you may need to decide to set up some boundaries about who gets in, how close they get to you. Otherwise, the wounds are never allowed to heal. Otherwise, it's like picking the same scab off your knee every day, and it never heals. So give yourself some margins. Give yourself some space so you can heal. There will be some activities you can't be involved in that person with. There will be some things you can't talk with that person about yet. There will be probably little time that you'll want to spend with that person at first, all the time realizing that a door is not the same as a wall. Maybe as you heal, you can pull some of these boundaries in somewhat. These boundaries are not established for the sake of never having a relationship, but just as a safety zone so you can heal first. Over time, possibly you should be able to pull these boundaries in, and maybe over time you can eventually remove them completely. But right after you've forgiven somebody of a big thing, not $100, but a big thing, you need boundaries so you can heal. Now, turn it around. If you have hurt somebody else deeply, the wisest thing you can do is to respect the boundaries that they set up. If they just can't talk to you right now, don't press the issue. Don't say, well, come on, I thought you forgave me. That's not necessarily the issue. They may have forgiven you, but people need time. They need time to heal. So respect their boundaries, and in so doing, you'll be participating in the healing of the relationship. I don't believe that God expects you to pretend that nothing ever happened. I believe it's unhealthy to pretend that nothing ever happened. It's even a lie to pretend that nothing ever happened. There is a time to confront. Forgiveness does not equal ignoring the problem. But do the confronting after you've forgiven. There's all the difference in the world in what happens in a conversation prior to forgiveness and after forgiveness. So forgive first and confront later. If you do it before, you may say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do, and make decisions you shouldn't make. Forgiveness allows us to see our own faults and offenses. Until I forgive, I'm pretty blameless in my own mind. It's all one way. But once I forgive, I begin to see how my own attitudes may have contributed to the problem. I begin to see how I participated in the problem. I begin to see how I may have responded wrongly to what was done to me, but I can't see it while I'm mad. So the bottom line here, as we get ready to take our break, at the cross, we all lost our excuse for refusing to forgive. The question is, how long are you going to hold on to it? I know you got good reason to in your own mind. We all do. But we've lost our right to refuse to forgive. And forgiveness may be the catalyst to you for great things. Because when we forgive, we are truly set free. 30-minute break. Please come back.